find our places and we will get started. You can go ahead and if you have your Bibles with you, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. So this is the time change morning and, and you know, that's a, that's a great thing. Um, it does also mean that there's bad weather coming. It does also mean that you drive, many of us drive to work in the dark and home from work in the dark. Uh, it, it does mean that the roads are bad and there's a lot of potholes. It does mean that when you hit them, you might blow a tire or throw your car out of alignment. Uh, you don't want to hit those, right? So we need to avoid them. Okay, so in Albania, where I lived for 14 years, some of the potholes are so big, you, you have to drive down into them and drive up out of them. You think I'm kidding. Okay, so that is what we can look forward to the next several months. Something to think about. Um, it's also a decent metaphor for life. Uh, because life has seasons, doesn't it? And a lot of the, some of the seasons are harder than other seasons. And just about the time that you think that you're making progress, something happens and you blow a tire and you mess up your alignment and it's hard to stay on course. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And God, who is the author of life, well, he's also the great picture painter. He gives us pictures in his word that illustrate our lives for us today, especially as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, it's certainly clear that God expects all of his children to set their life on a course to grow spiritually. Wouldn't you agree? And in our church, we have something that's called the path for growth. And the path for growth is described with these four circles. You can learn more. We have brochures out in the lobby. But there's a path for you. If you're new to First Baptist Church and you're wondering, how can I get involved? How can I grow spiritually? We actually have a plan that will help you. And uh, it's a really important plan. It's a course that you should set your life on. And many of you are successfully navigating your life along this path, regardless of where you particularly find yourself. You're moving forward along this path. And, well, there's probably others in here today that have started off well, but, you know, life happens. And when life happens, you know, sometimes you don't even realize it, but you've detoured some off of that path. And, well, those are the pitfalls of the Christian experience. And we need, to, we need to avoid them. In fact, God warns us to avoid the pitfalls of spiritual growth. And that's the title that I've given today's message. It's really going to be up to us whether or not we'll heed the warning that he has for us in these first 13 verses. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time of study. Heavenly Father, we are truly thankful for the warnings and the admonitions you give us in your word. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to learn the lessons of history. 
the lessons of the example of Israel and the things that they did well and the things that they did not do well, and that from their successes and failures that we also can then find our lives to be well-pleasing unto you. We need your Spirit to teach us. We need your Spirit to convict and to guide and to help us to stay on course and avoid the pitfalls in our life of growth in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Well, we're going to start our Bible study with what I'm calling spiritual demonstration. Spiritual demonstration. This is fairly obvious. The events of the life of Israel are referred to in verse 6 as our examples. Uh, They're referred to in verse 11 as ensamples, which is an older English word that literally is very similar to examples, but it's an example that's that's lived out in and through the life of real human beings. And so because they are our examples, he says in verse number one that we are not to be ignorant of them. In fact, Paul points out in other places that the Old Testament was written not just as a history book for what happened to them back then, but for our learning. Similar to 1 Corinthians 10, we have Romans 15 and verse number four. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, Well, when Paul wrote that, those things written aforetime, that's the Old Testament. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. The Old Testament certainly is full of lessons for us to learn. We may not have to obey specifically all of the details of the Mosaic Law and the killing of animal sacrifices. Those are fulfilled in Christ. Those are complete. But yet there's a lot of ways we can learn events from the Old Testament. So for example, in Hosea chapter 12 and verse number 10, it says, I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Similitudes, that's a simile. That's an illustration. That's something that when somebody says, this is like that, we may not understand what we're going through, but God gives us a picture. You understand the picture? I think I understand the picture. Okay, this is like that. And that's part of the way God teaches. And he teaches through the Old Testament story that way. So in this case, what we have is that the corporate life of Israel pictures the individual life of a Christian. That's what we see. In fact, it's very clearly laid out because in Exodus chapter number 4 and verse 22, it says, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Now, that's a very interesting statement. Israel is my son, even my firstborn. If you took the time to do the Bible study, and many of you already have done this, and some of you maybe not, but but you can check it out and see that it's true. The term, the phrase in the scriptures, the sons of God. The sons of God in the Old Testament never one time reference individual believers in Jehovah. Never one time. In fact, whenever the term the sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it only refers to angels. And if you want to do your own Bible study, just jot down Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, and Job chapter 38. And you can go there and you can check that out. But here we have the Son of God is pictured to us through the corporate life of Israel. Israel as a body of people, a nation of people, are called the Son, singular, of God. Now, we know that Jesus Christ ultimately is the only begotten Son of God, right? And because of what he did for us, now entering into the New Testament narrative, we can become sons of God by faith in him. So John chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13 very clearly state, but as many as received him, received Jesus Christ by faith as their personal Lord and Savior, but as many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God. And anybody who would have known their Old Testament would know that is a significant event. Even to them that believe on his name. How do we receive him? We receive him by faith. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hence the term, born again. You know, the question that each and every one of us need to deal with in our lives is, Have I received him? Have I actually and genuinely put my personal faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and what he did for me? And if I have done that, the Bible says that I too am 
a child of God. That's what it says. Now let's see how this plays out in the story of Israel. Because Israel is a picture of a New Testament Christian. In the story of Israel, what we find is, number one, that they started off their life in bondage in Egypt. And Egypt in your Bible is a picture and a type of the world. They were 400 years as slaves to a foreign power. And all through the scriptures, God tells his people, stay out of Egypt. Jesus Christ, when he was a child, he was hiding in Egypt for a while. God called him out of Egypt. Even Joseph, who worked for Pharaoh at the end of the book of Genesis, told his family, when I die, and they bury me in Egypt, when you leave Egypt, you take my bones with you. Don't even leave my bones in Egypt. Because Egypt is a type of the world. And before salvation, before New Testament faith in Jesus Christ and salvation, we, brothers and sisters, were in bondage to sin and to this world system, spiritually speaking. Well, in the story of Israel, number two, God sends a deliverer in Moses. And Moses is a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the deliverer that was sent to save us from our spiritual bondage. Amen? When Moses shows up, what does he do? He does many miracles. He came to set Israel free from the slavery that they were in. But though he laid out all of these plagues and all of these miracles before Pharaoh, ten of them in total, after the first nine plagues, Israel's still not set free from their bondage until that tenth plague, and that's number three, redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. That's the story of Exodus chapter 12. And you know the story where Moses tells Pharaoh and then ultimately the children of Israel that this tenth plague is coming. It's going to be the death of the firstborn throughout the entire land. But if you will kill a lamb and if you will put the blood on the two side doorposts and on the upper post of the door, when I come through the land, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and I will not take the life of your firstborn. Well, that is the beginning of what became then the Jewish Old Testament feast celebrated yearly of the Passover. Well, when we get to the New Testament then, we see in John chapter 1 and verse 29, when John the Baptist is baptizing, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That Old Testament Jew would understand the Lamb of God. Well, that refers back to that story of the Passover. And the nation of Israel was saved by applying the blood of the Lamb. That's the way you're saved. You apply the blood of the Passover lamb in your life. And you know that's what it means because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 7, it says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even notice Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Well, once they were set free, the children of Israel, then Pharaoh, who is a type of the devil, because God teaches in similitudes, then he pursues them. And don't kid yourself, born-again New Testament believer. Once you receive Jesus Christ in your life, he's going to pursue you too. Arguably the greatest miracle repeated over and over and over, or mentioned over and over again throughout the Bible is that crossing of the Red Sea. And the crossing of the Red Sea is a type and a picture of baptism. Right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that they were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. And it says that they were baptized unto Moses. And although we know the story of passing the Red Sea, that the children of Israel passed on dry land, we know they actually never got wet. But the cloud was all around them. The water completely surrounded them on all sides. And God calls it a picture of a baptism. Well, when they get to the other side, number six, the wilderness wandering, well, that represents the walk of faith. We learn to trust God daily through all the trials of life and all the things that happened to Israel as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Well, you'll find that those stories are not all that unlike the stories of things that happened to us in our life as well as we are on this journey trying to eventually get to what is number seven, entering the promised land, which is a picture of spiritual maturity. The promised land is not heaven. 
Uh, how do we know that the promised land doesn't picture heaven? Well, because when they entered the promised land, what did they find? A whole bunch of enemies. They had to keep fighting, right? They had more enemies and they had more fights to fight and more lands to conquer. Well, when you get to heaven, friend, let me tell you what you're not going to have to do anymore. Fight those fights. Uh, no, entering the promised land is not heaven. Entering the promised land is spiritual maturity. Yes, there will be battles to fight, but you have grown. You can walk with the Lord. The manna ceases. You gather your own food now. That's what it's all about. Now, it took the children of Israel way too long to get there. They made a lot of mistakes, some of which we'll see today. And in making those mistakes, it took them 40 years to get to the cash equivalent of spiritual maturity. It shouldn't take us that long. It shouldn't take us that long. But let me tell you something. If you've never seen this picture of Israel representing your individual life in the Old Testament, can I just tell you that your Old Testament reading is about to get a whole lot more interesting? Can I tell you that there's a whole lot more to that story than just the ancient story of a nation that's three to 4,000 years old? There's a lot more to it than just that. Well, what does all that mean for me? Well, what it means is, is that the Old Testament physical life pictures for us New Testament spiritual life. Of course it does. Of course it does. And what this does for us is it sets up the narrative for the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This then becomes our example, and we are to learn from their experiences. Well, what exactly can we learn? Well, that's point number two. Spiritual development. Spiritual development. Now, as we begin reading, we see that Israel certainly did some things right. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. And as such, we should do likewise. And in verses 2, 3, and 4, we see two key areas that determine our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you right now, Without both of these areas continually active in your life, you'll stop growing. You won't continue to grow. You need to be aware of these two areas. And the first one is submission, as demonstrated in baptism. As demonstrated in baptism, which is, biblically, your first step of obedience to the Lord after salvation. Now, thank God for these that were Willing to be obedient to the Lord in baptism today, amen? It's always a blessing, is it not, to see people come up here and surrender their lives to go into the water, right, and just as a testimony of what God has already done in their hearts spiritually. And I'm going to tell you something. Regardless of what Carrie Underwood thinks, there's nothing in the water <laughs> except submission. That's all that's in the water. The importance of baptism is just the fact that it requires a willing heart. It doesn't require any particular knowledge. It doesn't require any particular talent. It just is that you know that you are saved. So when we baptize people, we always ask them, do you know that you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And based on their profession of faith, we baptize them. Well, that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So based on his statement of faith, the eunuch, who now by faith has received Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, can now be baptized in water because he fulfilled the only requirement that there is for water baptism is that you know that you've been saved. Now, if you read some other version of the Bible than a King James Version, when you got to the end of verse number 6 and it says, what doth hinder me to be baptized, the answer you would get would be nothing. <laughs> because the English Standard Version and the New International Version and so many others, they just skip verse 37 altogether. And it says, it goes straight from verse 36, what doth hinder me to be baptized, into they went into the water and baptized. Uh, do you think that's right? Do you think that just anybody that says, I want to get baptized, okay, go ahead and baptize them. They don't check whether or not they've been saved first before they got baptized? No, there is the prerequisite, but it requires no skill or talent just for you to say, no, I've already done this spiritually. 
Okay, well, let's get baptized. Because it is the very first step. Baptism doesn't save you. But let me just tell you something. A person who says that they're saved, but yet is unwilling submission. They're unwilling to do one simple thing that God asks. Do you really think that such a person has really and truly surrendered the control of their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in salvation? Well, it's above my pay grade to judge. I don't know whether a person has truly done that or not. I can't understand all the nuances of how you rationalize things. But let me just tell you something. If you have come to the point in your life where you know that God has changed you, He has offered you eternity in place of your filthy rags, and He has given it to you freely, and all you have to do is surrender what you have to Him and His Lordship. And you are so thankful that he has taken your feet out of the miry clay and set you on a solid rock that you would do anything that he says. And he says, I have something I want you to do. I want you to go get dunked in a tank. And they say, nope, not doing that. That seems foolish. Oh, really? Okay, well, tell me again about your total surrender to the Lord because I'm just not really getting that. Not really getting that. Listen, don't leave here and say that I said what I didn't say. I didn't say if you don't get baptized, you're not saved. I said that your faith is suspect. That's what I said. Because the person who's truly surrendered, well, who cares? It's water. Here's a towel. It's okay. (laughs) Submission is everything, friends. Without it, you will not be saved. And without it, you will not grow. You will not grow. Colossians 2 and verse number 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? You received him by faith. How should you walk? You should walk by faith. How did you receive him? By surrendering everything you know about you to everything you know about him. How should you walk? By continuing to surrender everything you know about you to everything you know about him. That's how he wants you to walk. Submission is a big deal. Why is it such a big deal? Because the theme of the entire Bible is about authority. Who's in charge? That's how you got saved. Who's going to be the boss of your life? You or Jesus Christ? When you surrender to that, you submit to his authority, right? Well, who's going to be the boss of your life, born-again Christian, as you continue to walk? Is it going to be you or is it going to be the Word of God? That's the testimony. That's, the, that's how it comes into play. Do you want to grow in your faith? I know most of you do. Well, start by submitting to baptism. And then continue to submit to the Lord as he shows you whatever else is in front of you next for the rest of your life. And you will have joy. Well, the second thing that we need to learn from Israel is sustenance. That's food and drink sustenance so you that are parents you know this what do you tell your kids when they're little kids you say eat your food if you want to grow up and be strong right so with israel it says in verse three they all did eat the same spiritual meat spiritual meat now one thing you need to understand in your bible study is that the word meat as it's used in the old testament refers to the general category of food not just beefsteak. Meat means any kind of food. In fact, the very first time it's ever mentioned in the Bible is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree, the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. In other words, something to eat. It shall be for food. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 2 and verse number 4, it says, And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering, there was such a thing as a meat offering, well, tell us about what that meat offering is. Well, it's bacon in the oven. It shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. So in Leviticus, the meat offering didn't actually have any meat in it. It was bread. It was bread. So we have fruits and vegetables and seeds and bread and all those kinds of things under the category of meat. They all did eat the same 
spiritual meat. In the life of Israel now, as their life as a nation begins in the book of Exodus, they come to a point in Exodus chapter 16 where God rains down bread from heaven. It's called manna. You know the story. Now, what is that for us? What are we supposed to glean from that? What is our spiritual meat? Well, I think you know. The manna from heaven is a representation of the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God is likened to many types of food in the Scripture. Notice Luke chapter 4 and verse number 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So the Word of God is likened unto bread. There's your starch. Uh, Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The word of God is likened unto honey. There's your sugars. 1 Peter 2 and verse number 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So it's likened unto milk. You get calcium, you get vitamin A. It is likened unto meat as well from which you get your protein. Hebrews 5 and verse 12, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, there's the word of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. You should be grown to the point where not like a little baby that can only digest milk, you should now be grown to the point where you can actually handle meat. And he's talking about stronger teaching of the word of God. Proverbs 25 and verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. So it's likened unto apples, vitamin C. We have a complete and balanced diet, folks. So much so that Job said in Job 23 and verse number 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Because we have a complete and balanced diet. Spiritual food comes from the Word of God. That's where it comes from. And I want you to not leave this section of Scripture without noticing that it says they did all eat the same spiritual meat. They ate the same spiritual meat. Same food. Same word. Same source. Same Bible. I mean, they're not, they're not eating from several different versions of food that might not be consistent one with another. They eat the same spiritual meat. That's what it says. That was a good thing that they did. Well, verse 4 is very similar. It's spiritual drink. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? Well, we have a similar comparison. Now, where this comes from is Exodus chapter 17. So in Exodus 16, God gave the manna from heaven. And you could consider that spiritual if you want to because God sent it down. Uh, in Exodus 17, God brought water out of a rock. Consider that spiritual if you want to. It was literal water. They actually drank from it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 4 here in our text, it says that that rock was Christ. Can I point out to you while we're here for just a second that that rock is not Peter? Can I point out to you that Peter is not the rock? that the church is built upon. In fact, you don't want to go to a church that says our church is built upon the rock of Peter. You want to go to a church that says our church is built upon the rock of Jesus Christ. What is our spiritual drink? What is the comparison? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water. Oh, here it is again, of the word. It's the word of God. So Jesus Christ says in John 6 and verse 63, It's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. So once again, it's the word of God. That's how you grow in Christ. Uh, most of you knew that before you came here today. It's a beautiful picture that is given to us. But it's not just that, because anytime there are pictures and illustrations and types in the Scripture, you do yourself well to always refer them back to the very person of Jesus Christ. So in your notes, I put spiritual food and drink also point to the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go back in John chapter 6, several verses before the one we just read. Starting in verse 33. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. 
He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jump down to verse 48. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. That's the reference to Israel. That's the comparison 1 Corinthians 10 is making. Manna, the wilderness, the bread that came down then, but yet they still died. Your fathers. Verse 50, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. A little further, verse 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And you just have to try and put yourself in the disciples' sandals at this time and just think about what a shocking statement that was for them. And they, if they were thinking of it literally, which they were thinking of, they were scandalized by this thought, eat his flesh, drink his blood. What in the world is he talking about? Well, then Jesus does not end this discourse without clarifying the thing that I read earlier in verse 63. He clarifies what I'm talking to you about is not literal. I'm not saying literally eat anything or literally drink anything. In verse 63, it's the spirit that quickeneth or maketh alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words, there they are, that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. So this picture goes back to the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why one of the two ordinances of the New Testament local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is referred to in this context. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll get to it shortly in weeks to come. Verses 24 and 25, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And unlike some who would think that at the moment that you're taking this communion, that somehow magically and miraculously the wafer actually literally transubstantiates itself, into the actual body and the cup of wine or, or juice actually changes itself literally into the blood of Christ. No, that's not what he said. Just do it in remembrance of me. It's just a picture. It's just an illustration of the life that you get through me. What's the lesson for us? Well, ultimately, the only spiritual sustenance any of you need is Jesus Christ. That's all you need, amen? And all spiritual growth occurs only when we align our lives with Jesus Christ every single day. And don't hit the pitfalls and don't derail your alignment and don't get off course because the person of Jesus Christ covers it all, body, soul, spirit, like it says in Colossians 2 and verse number 9, For in Him, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He literally embodied everything there is about the Father and the Son and the Spirit in body and soul and spirit. And so after His ascension, after Jesus Christ bodily leaves planet Earth 2,000 years ago and ascends to the right hand of the Father, he replaces himself completely because his spirit is now the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. His soul is now the Bible, the very word of God, the very thing that shares with us the mind of Christ, the will of God, and all of his emotions and how he feels about everything there is about life. The Bible is the very soul of God. And he replaced his body, friends, with the church. Local assemblies of born-again believers that gather together literally become the body of Jesus Christ. So do you want to grow spiritually? 
Do you want to learn the lesson of Israel and the things that they did right? Are you interested in spiritual development? Well, just do this. Just abide in Christ. But abiding in Christ means you abide daily in His Word. You read it. You study it. You submit to discipleship. You come to classes that we teach, like at 9 a.m., for example. It, it, it includes the fact that you walk in submission to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who is the author of the Word. And it includes that you be an active, faithful participant in His church, that you would attend, that you would give, that you would pray, that you would serve, that you would love, that you would share your life with others. And doing all three of these things simultaneously is abiding in Christ. Because you can't pick and choose, I like his soul, but I don't like his body. Try that one with your wives, guys. (laughs) Jesus don't like it either. But just as sure as we can have spiritual development, we also run the risk of our third point, and that's spiritual decline. That's what we see in this list of things. And it says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now, recognize that this is Israel. This is my son, my firstborn. God is speaking about his son. God is speaking about those who are believers. We are talking about people who started off well, But something happened. They blew it. They deviated from the path. They hit a big hole and they got a flat. It says, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Being overthrown in the wilderness literally is just a reference to the fact that they spent 40 years in the wilderness and none of them from that original crowd actually made it to the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. All the people that entered the wilderness through the Red Sea died in the wilderness, all of them. And the only ones that made it into the new promised land were the children of those people that were born during that time. 20 years and younger, actually, that came through it at that time. They made it. And remember that the wilderness walk, the time in the wilderness, well, that's a picture of your walk with the Lord after salvation. So these events that are listed in these following verses, well, They stand as bad examples. That's what they stand for. So that we don't do what they did. Well, what did they do? It says, well, they lusted after evil things. They desired to have things that weren't good for them. Well, that's a temptation we all fight with, isn't it? Let's take a look at the list. Letter A, idolatry, not valuing God's sufficiency. Verse number seven, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. Now, historically, the reference in Israel is to Exodus chapter 32. And the reference is to when they built this golden calf. You remember that story? And we know that that's the reference because verse number 7 is a direct quote from Exodus 32 and verse number 6, where it says, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So you remember the story. So God calls Moses to go up into Mount Sinai, and he there receives the law of God up on the mountain. And he's there for quite some time. And while he's receiving the law of God, well, Aaron and the children of Israel down in the campment down below, uh, they're getting impatient. And they can't wait for him to return. And so they gather everybody's golden jewelry and they melt it all down and they form this golden calf and they actually declare, once they built this calf out of gold, they declared, now imagine this, Moses just went up to get the word of God. They can't even wait. They build this golden calf and they declare, Israel, this is the God that has delivered you from Egypt. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. The calf, or a bull in the scripture, represents the devil. And gold represents heaven. You know what they're doing? They're committing the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is attributing the miraculous works of God, demonstrated before your very eyes, and attributing those those to the devil. 
Now you say, we would never do such a crazy thing. I'm sure that that's true, but Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5 defines idolatry where it says covetousness is also idolatry. So you might do, you might not do something crazy like carve a statue and say that's your God. But you might lust after things that are not good for you when God wants you to be content with what he's already provided for you. You might find yourself being impatient and not being able to wait on God's answer for you, which can lead to, well, let's just call it practical idolatry. Verse 5 says that God was not well pleased. Well, let me just tell you, that's a very polite way to say it. Because in Exodus 32 and verse number 10, God is speaking to Moses while all this is going on. And he says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Literally, God says to Moses, They've gone crazy. Step aside, and I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'll start over with you and everybody else I'll give you. Now, if you took the time to study that passage, and you should, and we won't today, it's an amazing story where Moses prays, and depending on how you want to phrase this next little part, talks God out of it, begs God to forgive them, and God forgives them. God forgives them. But God was not well pleased with that act of idolatry, right? And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is written specifically referencing that as a warning to us. Might there be something in your life in which God is not well pleased? Might you be currently desiring things that are actually not good for you? That's what he wants you to consider. Letter B, impurity, not valuing God's separation. Verse number eight, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. Okay, historically, this is a reference to Numbers chapter 25. In verse number one, it says, and Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Okay, so sexual sin is always a problem, and sexual purity is for your own good, saved or otherwise. It doesn't matter. It's just for your own good. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, it promotes health if you're pure. But especially as a born-again believer. I want to remind you of something that we spent quite some time talking about when we were back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. At the end of 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 15, speaking to believers, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body so christian friend if you know that you've received jesus christ as your lord and savior jesus christ through his holy spirit dwells in you everywhere you go he goes everything you participate in you require him to participate in with you so, Christian, when you think the curtains are shut and the door's locked and nobody's looking, and you find yourself in those compromising situations, specifically in the category we're referring to here, and you give in to such a temptation, it's just a wee bit worse than if a lost person does, don't you think? You're taking the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you're joining yourself to a harlot. I think it's fair to say when God sees that, he's not well pleased. He's not well pleased with such behavior. 
Back in Numbers 25, in verse number 3 with Israel, it says, Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, his son. And don't you know that his anger would be kindled if you allow this to happen in your life too? And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is written for a warning to us. Can I just say to you, if you find yourself struggling with this kind of a situation, there is no other answer except this one. Stop it now. Just stop it. Cold turkey, cut it off, it's done, it's over, stop it. That's how you please the Lord. And get back on track. Now, just because it's in here, I have to show you Bible students, okay? If you're going to do the cross-reference between Numbers 25 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse number 8, it says, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Twenty-three thousand people died. But in Numbers chapter 25 and verse number 9, it says that twenty-four thousand people died. Well, there you have it. The Bible's not reliable. We have a contradiction in the scriptures. 23,000 over here, 24,000. Oh, come on, please, really. This is very easily reconciled if you just pay attention and read all of the words. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, fell in one day, three and 20,000. In numbers, it doesn't give a time reference. It just says, total died, 24,000. So 23,000 died in one day and 1,000 died the next day and you have 24,000 and there is no contradiction in the scripture and shame on you for thinking there is. Letter C, indecision, not valuing God's supply. Verse number nine. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Man, this is getting rough. We're gonna compare scripture with scripture. That's what we're supposed to do. Tempting the Lord is to doubt his presence. Exodus chapter 17 and verse number 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the children of because the chiding, excuse me, of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord. How did they do that? Saying, is the Lord among us or not? Indecision. They can't decide. They're doubting whether God is even with them anymore. So historically, the reference is Numbers chapter 21. We'll start reading in verse number 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much, much discouraged because of the way. The way that they were on, the path that they were on, it was hard. It, it is hard, by the way. The, the path that the Lord has us on, don't kid yourself, it's hard. And you can get discouraged along the way. They were discouraged because they were not getting what they wanted. And they were frustrated. In verse number 5, they took it too far. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. We're so sick of God's provision in the manna. Can't we get something new? Well, the Lord was not well pleased because in verse number six, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. They were doubting whether God was even there in their midst. They were doubting whether the Lord was still leading them. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is given as a warning to not tempt Christ. You ever find yourself falling prey to that pothole of life? Is God even still here? Why am I in this mess? Where did the Lord go? Why do I have to suffer like this? Now to think those things, that's natural. But to really give in to them, well, that's a problem. God sent them fiery serpents you know that the serpent is used in the scripture to describe to us the devil 
And Christian, if you get to the point in your life where you even doubt whether or not God's even involved in your life anymore, you open yourself up to satanic attack at a level that may be hard for you to recover from. Listen, man, don't fall so low. Don't be so selfish as to doubt God's very presence. You know God says, you know it's true that he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So to doubt his presence around you is to doubt his very existence. You become a practical atheist in that moment. The fourth thing we see in this list is an insurrection, not valuing God's servants. Verse number 10, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, historically, this one's a little tougher to pinpoint because, well, Israel murmured a lot. I mean, they murmured a lot and they got destroyed a lot. So, you know, it's a tough one to pinpoint. They murmured for water and Exodus 15, they murmured for food in Exodus 16, and I mean, they just kept murmuring all the time. I mean, they were, I mean, face it, it was a nation full of whiners. I mean, they were just constantly complaining all the time. But of all the different places, I, I feel like the most appropriate reference in what God's trying to communicate to us comes in Numbers chapter 16. And in Numbers chapter 16, they're specifically murmuring against God's delegated leadership in the rebellion of a man named Korah. Korah is a guy who didn't like the fact that God put Moses in charge. And Korah said, we're just as good as Moses. Why don't he put us in charge? So Korah influenced a bunch of other people around him to basically say, what makes you so special, Moses? I mean, we're all God's children here. I mean, we're in this predicament that we're in because you led us here. See, they didn't recognize God actually led them there. And they're like, we don't like it. So I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to boot you, and we're going to get a new leader, and we're going to go back to Egypt where we're safe. Oh, remember what Egypt represents? Oh, yeah, that's the world. Not supposed to go there. Don't even leave my bones in Egypt. Well, you know what God did with those guys, Korah and his bunch? Well, let's just say he was not well pleased. God opened up the ground and swallowed them alive into the pit of hell. Verse 33 of Numbers 16. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. Do you realize that any attack on the structure and the servants that God has chosen to represent him is an attack on God himself. Do you recognize that should God find displeasure in his representation, that he's fully capable of removing them without your help? Are you aware of that? He wants you to be. That's why he says things like 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation but before two or three witnesses and them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Well, that's a two-edged sword. If you find that an elder in a church is truly in sin, you should rebuke him before all so that everybody fears. But it also means if those that accuse him falsely are found to be false accusers, you should rebuke them before all so that everybody will fear and not be so hasty. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, because, friends, that is unprofitable for you. If they need to give an account for you with grief right? And if you've been a part of our church lately, you know that we've had some of this behavior in our midst in the several years that I've been here, and God just wants you to know that if you do that, then you're sus subject to this destroying of the destroyer thing. And let me just tell you, you don't want to be a part of that. You don't want to be a part of that. So let's wrap this up, and quickly we'll finish the last few verses. Verse number 11. 
Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, specifically upon whom the ends of the world are come. This is the last day's Christian. This is us, y'all. This is literally for us. God wants to get our attention. He wants to draw our focus on these specific things. And he does it with a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. The warning is in verse number 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Can I ask you a question? And just within yourself, think. How are you doing with the Lord today? How's your relationship with the Lord today? You say, I I think it's okay. I mean, I'm not trying to be haughty. I I think it's okay. Well, praise the Lord. You think think you're standing? you're You're in good standing with the Lord? I mean, I'm sure many of you are. Praise the Lord. That's fantastic. Awesome. He says to you, if you think you're doing okay, take heed. (laughs) Just take heed. Lest you be the one that fall, right? Don't get overconfident. Don't get cocky. Stay humble, right? Stay submissive. I mean, tomorrow it could be you. Stay in God's word. Stay in God's spirit. Stay in God's church. But there might be other people listening to this message today whose honest answer to that question, how you doing with the Lord, your honest answer might be, well, not so good. I've been kind of struggling. Deep in your heart, you know you've taken a detour. Well, God for you has a promise. And that promise is in verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. There's times when we all think, whatever I'm going through, nobody's ever gone through this before. You don't understand because you've never been through it. Well, the specific details of your situation are definitely unique, but the general category of the type of temptations and lessons, God has the same for everybody. What you're going through today or tomorrow or the next day, we're all going through. Everybody's going through it. Such as is common to man. Can I tell you, friend, if you're struggling today, God is faithful. You may not have been faithful, but God is faithful. And he wants you to remember that he's faithful. And in the demonstration of his faithfulness, he tells you this. He will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that you're able. You might think, this is too much for me to bear. I can't possibly bear it. He says, you can but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Don't give in to temptation. You don't have to. Temptation is common to all. But you can say no. Being tempted is not sin. Giving in is sin. And you don't have to do that. Because God says you can bear it. And if you think you can't bear it, then you need to get your mind in line with what God says because God says if this was so much that you could not bear it, I would not have allowed it. You know what that means to you, friend? Even if you're struggling today, even if your faith is weak today, God has a higher opinion of your strength than you do. If you are going through it, By definition, you can bear it. Just hang in there and be faithful. He judges you to be stronger than you think you are, and that's a blessing. So just surrender to his lordship. Feed on his word. Walk in his spirit. Let them rule in your lives, and let them do that starting right now. And you too can avoid these pitfalls and you too can continue to grow and you too can enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so humbled and grateful by the truth that you've given us in this chapter, by the example of the nation of Israel and the way in which we can learn from their example. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts. First and foremost, I want to pray for anyone here who is not sure that if their life were to tragically end before this day was over, that they'd have their home in heaven. That if that's the case, that 
today would be the day that they would just surrender all to you in salvation. That they would call upon you, Lord Jesus, and just ask you to forgive them of their sins. Ask you to come into their heart and their life and be the Lord, the boss of their life, that they would fully surrender, that they would receive you as their Lord and Savior by faith and then begin to follow your path, beginning with baptism and all the other things that you have for them. But life has to begin with a rebirth. And I pray that they would do that today. But so many others know that they've done that, but maybe something's come along the way and they didn't even know what happened, but now they're off in the weeds somewhere. They've left the path of growth and they need to get back on. Whatever the specific application is, Lord, I pray that they would surrender it all to you afresh, that they would come back home and that they would begin to feed and feast on your word and your presence in this body. Lord Jesus, change lives, I pray, for your honor and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.